0: Yeah, I I was sure I was going to be a baker because I like donuts. (laughs) My mom wouldn't let me have them, so there you go. I became a pastor because we have donuts every Sunday. You know, it worked out. So we, (laughs) we are in the midst of a series called His Story, in which we have been looking from Genesis to Revelation, kind of stepping back from those smaller stories and looking at the big grand narrative that runs all the way through the Bible. It's a narrative in which God is the central character, he is the central focus, and it really is a story about our father in heaven in pursuit of relationship with his prodigal children. And with any relationship, one of the most caustic, destructive things we can bring into it are expectations. Um... You know, I, I find in my own relationship with my family that it's usually expectations that can trigger me to being most frustrated and angry with my wife and my kids. Good example is a couple weeks ago, Ethan is playing flag football right now. And, yeah, yes. And, and a couple of weeks ago, um, well, you know, here's the thing I'm a competitive person. I yeah, it's Shocking, I know. I love team sports. I love competition. It's something that kind of grew on me later in life. It wasn't something I had as a kid. But I kind of expect Ethan to be just like his dad. I expect him to care about winning. I expect him to care about doing his very, very best. Even if he's not the best at it yet, I expect him to want to be the best. And instead, he seems to want to see how far he can walk with his eyes shut before he runs into something, you know? And so, like... A couple last week, actually, in one of our games, I'm sitting over on the sideline. I've got the camera because I'm kind of the I, I, I take care of that, and I'm watching as Patrick Stack every single play has this look of intensity, like I'm going to tear the quarterback's jugular out. And Ethan's doing this, eyes rolled back in his head, staring up at the clouds, like wandering out. I'm going, focus. And I, I'm that parent on the side going. Pay attention! What are you doing? Don't you know this is how we're paying for college? Get going! (sighs) I'm that parent. I never thought I'd be that parent. Who seems to find his identity through five-year-olds playing a game. Uh, The reality is, I have brought, I have carried an expectation into that sport with my boy, And he doesn't seem all that interested in fulfilling that expectation. And so I find myself getting frustrated, angry, even disappointed at my boy because he's not fulfilling some unspoken expectation that I've carried in. You know, the the, the problem with expectations is that they present us with a picture that quite often does not match reality. And then when we have these expectations, we have this picture of what we want. We have a choice. Either we can tear up the picture, tear up our list of expectations and embrace the person in front of us for who they really are. Or we can embrace our expectations and we spend our lives tearing up the person for not being what we want them to be. And the Jews ran into this with Jesus, particularly on Palm Sunday. Because they had a very clear set of expectations that they'd garnered from reading the Old Testament and interpreting it it in the way that they thought God would answer those promises. All throughout Scripture, God was promising, I will send my Messiah, my anointed Redeemer. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's healing people, he's driving out demons, and they're thinking, maybe this is our guy, maybe this is our Messiah. And what I want to do today is I want to look at some of the expectations that the Jews had towards Christ, towards Jesus, towards God's anointed Redeemer, and then we'll look at how it caused them to miss it. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 12. We're going to pick up the story of Jesus. And by the way, um, just so you understand, this whole series is not about going deep into the life of Christ, and we're going to spend only two weeks actually looking at Jesus' life right now, this week and then Easter Sunday. Once we're finished with this series, our plan is that we are going to go through the Gospel of John and we are going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through that so we can get a much deeper perspective on Jesus' life. For right now, we are hitting broad brushstrokes. But suffice it to say, just a little bit of background that will help us understand this. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the day that marks the beginning of the Easter weekend as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and began a week of preparation that would ultimately culminate in the cross, and we all know how that kind of ends, and in his resurrection and all that. We know how the story ends, but what I want to look at today is how the story begins. Palm Sunday is one of those days in the Jewish calendar that the, the people of Israel celebrated every year. It was something that God instituted from the time that he brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he did so using ten plagues that ultimately broke the back of Pharaoh's resolve, and it showed that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was a far greater God than any of the gods of Egypt. The very last of those plagues was one in which God said, here's what I want you to do. About four or five days before I do this, I want you to go out into your flocks and I want you to choose a spotless lamb out of your flocks. I want you to invite this lamb to come and live with you for four or five days. Your kids are going to name it. You're going to know it. You're going to, to appreciate it. And then at the end of that time, I'm going to ask you to slaughter that lamb. Collect its blood. And that blood will be used to mark the doorframe and the lentils of your homes, to mark that you have been covered by the blood of the lamb. And then, at the end of that time, the angel of the Lord is going to pass through, God bless you, the angel of the Lord is going to pass through Egypt, and he will kill every firstborn male of your families every firstborn male of your flocks but every single home that's marked with the blood of the lamb the angel of the lord will pass over and no death will occur in that home the israelites did this the egyptians did not and ultimately that was the final nail in the coffin of pharaoh's resolve he let the people go that was the annual reminder that the, the Israelites would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate, that God had redeemed his people from slavery. We looked at that weeks ago. And now Jesus comes entering into Jerusalem, leading into the Passover festivals. Not only that, but the people are realizing, okay, Jesus has been you know, you know, feeding multitudes of people with just little bits of food. He's been teaching in a way that's radically different than any of the other rabbis. Most rabbis just read the scriptures. Jesus is a man who teaches with authority, as if he almost wrote the scriptures himself. Not only that, but he's been casting out demons, healing the broken, giving sight to the blind. And just the day before, Jesus did the biggest thing yet. He raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. The word is out. People are talking about him. Could this be the Messiah that has been promised? Could this be God's anointed redeemer? And so we read now in John chapter 12, verse 12, the response of the people. The next day, the day after he raised Lazarus from the dead, a great crowd that had come for the festival of the Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, I lost my place shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it was written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, at first, the disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb raised from the dead so this crowd continued to spread the word and many people because they had heard that he had performed the sign went out to meet him. You know what I find most interesting and ironic about this whole thing? Is this is Sunday and five days later those same crowds that are shouting Hosanna save us blessed is the king of Israel are the same ones shouting crucify him! crucify him and it leaves us to ask why what happened in those five days that would turn the crowd so vehemently against him and so what i want to do is i want to i want to take about 10 minutes and i want to explore some of the reasons why the number one reason i would suggest to you this morning is that their expectations of what Jesus was supposed to be as the Messiah did not match the reality of the man that he came to be. and Because of that, they had a choice. Embrace the expectations or embrace their true Messiah. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. A little bit of backstory. Um, the, The term Messiah which in Greek is translated Christ, is actually not Jesus' last name. Most of us know that. It is a term that means anointed one. You see, throughout the Old Testament, whenever God would select a leader of his people, maybe it was, you know, a judge, or it was a prophet, or it was a king, he would have that individual They would pour oil over that individual, anointing them, because the oil was a tangible symbol of the Spirit of God resting on that individual, empowering them for the role that God had for them. And the people, throughout Scripture as they read, recognized that although God constantly was warning them, hey, listen, if you turn your back on me, if you reject me, then I will give you over. To your choices. If you're going to place your faith in your own strength, then I'll give you over to your own strength and you'll see the results of that. If you begin to worship other gods, then I will give you over to those other gods and you will see just how incapable they are of protecting you. If you run after the things of this world, then I'll give you the things of this world and you will realize just how empty and broken those things truly are. But in the midst of those dire warnings and those warnings that the people, if they rejected Him, would be brought out of the land, which ultimately happened, that they would be overrun by foreign countries, which happened. God also was constantly saying, but even in your unfaithfulness, I will not be unfaithful to you. I will never turn my back so fully on you that you are completely destroyed and wiped from the face of this earth. I will raise up an anointed redeemer, my Messiah, who will redeem you out of the hands of the foe and reestablish my throne. This Messiah will, will ultimately be the king in the line of David. And about 160 years before Jesus came on the scene, the state of Israel found itself in a, a pretty precarious place. They had been overrun by the nation of Syria. And there was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes who had taken over this land of Israel, the promised land. Not only that, he had outlawed the studying of the Hebrew Scriptures he had taken the high priest of the Jews and he had deposed him, taking him out of his role, and instead he inserted his own pagan high priest. And this high priest began to do things like offering pigs as sacrifices on the altar that was for God. which is the, you know A pig is an unclean, unkosher animal. It was a slap in the face of Yahweh. Not only that, though, but these pigs were sacrificed to Zeus. Talk about slapping God in the face. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back of the Israelites' resolve. They decided, we cannot stand idly by as we watch God's throne room, the Holy of Holies, be desecrated in this way. And so there was a group of revolutionaries led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Mostly it was a family that began to rally the troops and began to call out, we cannot stand idly by, we must take this back. And they ended up deposing Antiochus Epiphanes and throwing off the yoke of Syria and taking back the temple, and they cleansed it over the course of eight days, which is where we get the idea for Hanukkah. It's a celebration of that victory. And Psalm 118 became their rally cry. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to start in verse 15, but I want you to see the cry of the people during this time because it's going to factor in pretty heavily with why we understand Palm Sunday to be Palm Sunday beginning in verse 15. Shouts of joy and victory. Remember, these are the cries of the people. Psalm 118 became a rallying cry for the revolutionaries during Judas Maccabeus' revolt. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. And I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter in and give thanks to the Lord. And anytime you see Lord in capital letters, it is Yahweh, the name of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So this is the gate of the Lord Yahweh through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yahweh has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. And now look at these next words. Yahweh, save us. And that term, save us, is translated, Hosanna. The word Hosanna is translated into English, save us. So, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And then you'll recognize this next verse as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Another thing that was cried by the people as Jesus was entering in on Palm Sunday. <clears throat> the Lord God, uh, the Lord is God, and He has made His light shine on us. So, with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar, and they would use palm branches. In the festival procession, as they went to the horns of the altar to celebrate and sacrifice to God and rededicate the temple, the palm branch became a central component of their worship, of their celebration. It became a symbol of the revolution that they had just done. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And so we see in Psalm 118, kind of the prototype for what's happening on Palm Sunday. Go back with me now to John chapter 12. I just want to read a couple of those verses again. I want us to to notice a couple of things because you'll see that the people are beginning to think, here comes our Messiah. Fast forward some 200 years after Judas Maccabeus. Once again, Israel finds itself enslaved, or at least under the rule of... of a a false occupier, Rome. It's no longer Syria, now it's Rome, but still the people are saying, surely God is going to send his Messiah, his anointed Redeemer. Surely God is going to break us out of this. He's going to reestablish the throne of David just as he promised he would. And here comes Jesus, teaching with authority, healing the broken, Casting out demons. Raising the dead. Here is our guy. Here comes our king. Here comes God's anointed. And so we say, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both of those directly taken from Psalm 118. The palm branches, again, were a symbol. You are going to protect us. By the way, Judas Maccabeus, after they had taken back the temple, they actually had coins... That were stamped. And this was temple money they had coins stamped with Judas Maccabeus' face on the front, and on the back was the palm branch, as a symbol of the revolution and God's redemption of His people. So they waving palm branches and saying, "Hosanna! Save us! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel!" Now that's actually not in Psalm 118. That's something they added in, because they fully believed that Jesus was coming to reestablish the throne of David to reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world under the leadership of God. Jesus was their guy. And Jesus was aware of this. He was aware of the expectations of the people. Turn with me, because we're going to go there in just a second, to um, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew and turn left, two books, you'll hit Malachi and then Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus was aware of the expectations of the people. He knew that they expected him to come as a conquering king, kind of in the mold of of Judas Maccabeus. Chapter 9 of Zechariah. He was aware of this, and so he did something really interesting. He told a couple of his disciples, they're sitting right now on the Mount of Olives, which if If this is Israel, if you guys are Israel, I'm sorry, if you guys are Jerusalem, just kind of want you to get this mental picture. If you're Jerusalem, here's the whole city standing in front of me, this would be the Mount of Olives. It's literally that close. It's maybe two or three hundred yards outside of Jerusalem. It looks over into, onto the Temple Mount and into Jerusalem proper. Jesus is standing here and he goes, okay, hey you two, go into the city of Jerusalem and I want you to walk until you see a donkey there tied up with a colt next to it. It's, It's baby. And I want you to bring those to me because I'm going to ride the colt into Jerusalem. Which is interesting because in the three years of Jesus' ministry, ministry that we have recorded here, not once do we read about Jesus ever riding an animal. Not once. And yet, on this day, he chooses to ride some two or three hundred yards into the city. Why? To point directly to this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. A prophecy that spoke about the coming king. The Messiah. So we read in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion. Shout daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Lowly or humble. And riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. You see when kings would enter into their capital city or in, into any city during a time of war. They would ride a war horse because it was a time of war. But when a king was in a time of peace, he would sit upon a donkey. It was symbolic. He goes on. Basically, Jesus was trying to say, listen, I'm not trying to usher in a war. I am actually coming to bring peace. It goes on in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, this coming King, this Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. It's interesting that the people were expecting a Messiah out of the design of Judas Maccabeus. One who would bring the sword and would throw off the yoke of Rome. They fully expected him to come as a conquering king, not as a sacrificial suffering servant. They fully expected him to clean out the the, the royal palace rather than the temple, but that's what he came to do. They totally anticipated that he would come to fight against Roman soldiers, but he focused most of his attention instead on the Jewish, Jewish religious elite. They expected that the enemy he was coming to fight was Rome, but they were wrong. Jesus really came to fight against the greatest foe that any of us in mankind has faced. Sin. It's a foe that we had become aware of, you know, in the chapter 3 of Genesis, all the way back from the beginning. Sin and subsequently death, all of those things, that's what Jesus came to fight against. That's what Jesus came to throw off. Not Rome. Rome is an occupier for a day or for a season. Sin and death had been something that had marred mankind and separated us from our Father Creator God from the beginning. And that's what Jesus came to do. Not to bring the sword. He came to bring himself as a sacrifice. To be that Passover lamb. Whose blood would ultimately cover us. So that when the angel of the Lord came in judgment. He would pass us over. So that rather than us being declared as sinners. And separated from a relationship with God. We could be called saints. But even more than that. Sons and daughters of the living God. That's what Jesus came to do. Not with a sword. But with himself. God in human flesh, and he took upon himself the punishment we couldn't do for ourselves. But there's a problem. The Jews had a different perspective of what the Messiah should look like. Jesus didn't match that, and so they were left with a choice. Tear up our expectations and embrace our Messiah for who he is, or embrace our expectations and reject our Messiah. And sadly, the vast majority of them chose the latter. They embraced their expectations and they completely missed their coming Messiah who was right in the front of them. And we may shake our heads because some 2,000 years later, we have been steeped in Scripture. We see the whole picture. We know that three days later, after he was crucified, he rose from the dead. We get it. And we go, How could you be so blind? How could you allow those false expectations to blind you from who was right in front of you? And yet I suspect that 2,000 years later, we're not all that different from the Israelites. Because I think that each and every one of us carries expectations into our relationship with God as well. Maybe some of us have concluded, or maybe we've even been taught, that if you give your heart to Jesus, He'll make everything Okay, he'll complete he'll clean it up totally. Addictions, they'll be gone. You won't struggle anymore. Brokenness will be healed completely in the flesh. Maybe maybe we concluded that you know, if we truly follow him and love him and give our hearts to him, then he will give us the desires of our hearts, the house, the spouse, the two point five children. The, the, the really satisfying job that whatever, you fill in the blank. He'll give us those things. And then we, yet we look at our lives and our expectations, desires that we've curled the fingers of our heart around and made into demands. And days become weeks and weeks become months and months become decades. And we realize, you're not giving me these things. And we become disappointed. And as time passes, our disappointment metastasizes into frustration and anger. Maybe we encounter hardship in our life and we begin to go, God, this isn't fair. Why are you doing this? Or maybe we look at our own lives and go, where's the sin? What is it that I've done wrong that he would be punishing me in this way? And I think one of the false impressions that we have is that following Jesus will result in a comfortable, safe life. I've got to tell you that that would have been a completely foreign thought to Jesus' disciples. He went out of his way to warn them, listen, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble, he told them, straight up. In this world, you will encounter trouble and trial, but he didn't stop there. He said, you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. In another place, and you can throw uh, the last slide that we have up there of this verse. In another place, Jesus told his disciples really early on in his ministry. This isn't towards the end. This is early on. He said, listen, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Because whoever would like to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. I got it. I've got to tell you, that sounds like a far cry from that kind of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that some of us like to hold on to and think that if I follow Jesus, He's going to make my life comfortable. He never promised us comfort, at least not here and now. We can look forward to Revelation 21 when every tear is dried, when there is no more brokenness, no more effects of the fall. But that time is not yet. Jesus never said, follow me, and surely I will make your lives comfortable. He said, follow me. That's it. I remember um, about four years ago, it was a pretty low point in my life. I had been at another church pastoring there. And in the process of ministering, and I've, I know I've shared this with you before, in ministering to other people I had forgotten about cultivating my own relationship with God. I'd kind of neglected that. I spent more time reading the Bible for what I could share with other people than I spent actually nourishing my own soul. And I got dry. And my relationship with God began to suffer greatly to the point where God finally said, okay, enough of this. Come with me. Jump out of this job. Even though you're a single income family with a one-year-old kid, Follow me, because I desperately need to restore your soul, Eric, before you can possibly try to minister to other people. And so in obedience, I quit that job and entered into what I hoped was a very short season of, of kind of figuring out life and stuff like that. And about a month in, God said, Okay, Eric, stop. Be still. I knew exactly what that meant. Don't try to go find another job. Just sit and rest and allow God to continue to do the work he he was going to do. I did know that when other things would come my way, like when he brought something into my path, I was allowed to look at it, but I was not allowed to go out searching for a job. I was not allowed to go online looking for another job. And I'll tell you, as somebody who found his identity in what he did, I know probably none of of you can identify with this, but I tend to find a lot of my identity in what I do. And for somebody who's like that, it is dying to myself daily not to go online searching it was taking up my cross daily to submit to him and to be still and to look internally at the carnage of my soul and in the midst of this i began to feel like i was literally in and living out psalm 23. god had god was in the process of leading me through the valley of the shadow of death and i'm going man the fact that this is so hard and so painful and so contrary to every part of me, you must have something really amazing in store for me. Man, you, if to take me out of that really comfortable pasture, you must have a much more comfortable pasture on the other side of this valley. That's my mindset. And in the midst of a time of prayer and journaling, God challenged directly that expectation in me. And I know I've shared this with, with some of you before, but I want to just read this very short um, journal entry that I wrote about four years ago. Because this so perfectly captures God saying, hey, that expectation that you have of me, I want you to lay it down if you really want to follow me. What if this broken road isn't intended to lead me to a greener pasture? What if the purpose of this path is to draw me into a deeper, more intimate relationship with my shepherd? Throughout this whole journey, I've held on to the belief that God has called me out of a comfortable place in order to prepare me for something better. And so I've followed him with confidence that the more painful the journey, the greater the payoff in the end. And this whole time I've interpreted payoff to mean a better, more comfortable place to rest on the other side of this valley. And yet comfort probably isn't God's ultimate intention. From everything I've read about him in scripture... Those he called to follow him weren't usually rewarded with a lucrative, comfortable position. In fact, most of them continued to suffer throughout their lives, sacrificing jobs, family support, health, even their lives in the pursuit of their Lord. So I need to ask the question, if the only fruit that this season produces is a more intimate intimate relationship with my Lord, if the only fruit that this season produces, the season of suffering, if the only fruit of it is a more intimate relationship with my Lord, one where I learn to trust His lead and His pace, am I willing to follow Him regardless of the cost? And while I don't like that thought, the only answer I can give is, of course, where else would I go? He is the only source of life and true purpose. So lead on, Jesus. My family will follow. Wherever you want to take us, whatever pace you want to set is your prerogative. We choose to trust you. Just please be gentle. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We have before us today, each and every one of us, we have a choice set before us. Do we continue to hold on to our expectations of what life in following Jesus should look like? Do we continue to grip on to our demands and say, God, I'll follow you only so long as you meet these needs? Or do we embrace Jesus as not only our Savior, but as our Lord, as the captain of our ships? And say, I'll follow you regardless of where you leave, lead, regardless of how countercultural it may be, regardless of the cost. Because at the end of the day, you are the only source of true life and true purpose in this broken world. Do we embrace our expectations or do we truly embrace our Lord? And the choice is something that each and every one of us need to make and it's one that is as the, the worship team comes forward now, I simply want us to go into a time where we examine our own hearts. Examine, perhaps, the expectations we have carried into this relationship with God with us. And maybe part of this time, certainly we can be singing these songs, singing Hosanna, Save Us, which is both a cry of help but also a declaration of God's victory in our lives. But maybe we just want to spend some time honestly having a conversation with him and and, and confessing the ways in which we have allowed expectations to mar our perception of him. Spend some time confessing the ways that we have allowed our expectations to get in the way. They have metastasized into frustration, anger, and bitterness. And perhaps right now we need to lay those down so that we can come to him just as we are and receive him just as he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so, so grateful that you put up with our very short-sighted and very small-minded concerns. You're the God of heaven, you see everything, and yet we see very dimly, just a portion. And I confess the ways in which I tend to make my own life kind of the central story. I try to make you a supporting cast member as opposed to vice versa, recognizing that I get to be a part of your epic narrative of redeeming all of mankind. God, I'm sorry for the ways that I have allowed expectations. To color the way that I approach you. To hinder me in some ways from coming fully just as I am. And running to you just as you are. Would you have your way in my life? Would you glorify yourself? We submit ourselves and say, Father, use us. Our lives are yours. Glorify yourself through us regardless of what that means. Jesus, it's in your name. Father, it's for your sake. Holy Spirit, it is through your empowerment that we pray these things. Amen.